0: I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. That'll be the last time I say that for some time, probably, as Wade mentioned in his prayer. This is the final sermon of our two-year series, verse by verse, through the 21 chapters of John's Gospel, and you may think, boy, we started this in January of 2022. Here we are on the cusp of December of 2023. That is a long time, and it may be but what I truly believe is that we will never mind the depths of all that God would say to us in his word. We will never get to the bottom of all that scripture has to teach us. I've been teaching and preaching the Bible full-time for 28 years. I thought about it this week, and I did the math. If God gives me the grace to preach another 28 years, I'll only be 82. My dad's 88. He's teaching an adult Sunday school class this morning, so by God's grace, maybe I'll reach 88 of continuing to preach the Bible. Well, before we get into the message, I do want to give you a little preview of where we're going next Sunday. We're entering an Advent series, a five-part series entitled Christmas Hits, and what we're going to be doing is looking at five different songs Advent songs from the Bible, one from the Old Testament, four from the New Testament. We'll conclude that series on Christmas Eve evening. Christmas Eve is on Sunday this year, so we'll have a service that morning. We'll also have have a Christmas Eve candlelight service that night, and we'll conclude that service, uh, that series, by looking at the Song of the Angels. Inside the bulletin, you may have noticed there is a sermon card that has the five sermons outlined there. Here's a novel idea. Read the scripture before you come to church. Think of that. If you read the passage I'm gonna preach, man, you may even get a little bit out of the sermon. That's incredible. So let's now turn to John chapter 21. Again, this is for me a little bit bittersweet. I am a little melancholy. John has been my constant companion for the last two years. And um, as we've considered his account, the one whom Jesus loved, his account of Jesus, his savior. Well, this morning I'm preaching a message I've entitled, Restored. And although our focal text is from verses 15 to 25, I'm really going to focus in primarily on the first five verses. This is the account of Jesus restoring Peter fully to service in his kingdom. Restoring Peter after he had an epic failure in the early mornings of Good Friday, Jesus personally restores him to leadership. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever known a Christian leader who has fallen, who has failed you, perhaps in some epic way, like Peter, epically failed the Lord? The first church I served in in South Georgia full-time, about a decade before I served there, there was an associate pastor who had embezzled from the church over $100,000. He was pilfering cash from the offering plates every week. After Amy and I had left and gone to serve in another church in central Florida, the the senior pastor who came in after us was eventually arrested for indecent exposure at a public park in Valdosta, Georgia. Awful, devastating that someone who has spiritual leadership would fall in such a spectacular way. The reality is is this, Christian leaders in particular are especially susceptible to the temptations, the lurid temptations of the evil one, especially when there is not clear and consistent accountability in those leaders' lives. Here's the question before us this morning. Look at this next slide. Is there any return to some kind of kingdom usefulness for someone who has denied the Lord through their words or through their actions. Is it one and done? Is it three strikes and you're out? Is there any return to some kind of kingdom usefulness? Is there any coming back from an epic failure? Well, here's a preview, here's the answer at the beginning of the message. According to Jesus, according to this passage, the answer is a resounding yes, (laughs) there is a return. There is a restoration because although you may not have betrayed the Lord in some sensational or spectacular or salacious way, all of us have denied the Lord in some way. All of us have forsaken our commitment to Jesus in some way, and it will be the object of the devil to whisper into your heart and your mind, you can't ever come back from this. He would be perfectly satisfied for you to simply remain on the sidelines for the rest of your life. But I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word and the authority of Jesus' own word here in this passage, Jesus doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to be restored. You see, part of what makes the gospel such good news is not just that you could be forgiven of your sin, but you can be restored from your sin. Restored to usefulness. And the idea that you can be restored is so hated by the evil one that he has all kinds of lies and deceptions he speaks to us. And the best way to counter Satan's lies is with the truth of the word, the truth of the Bible. Satan would like us to think, yes, you can be forgiven in some kind of judicial way. Yes, you're forgiven. But he doesn't want us to live out of that reality of forgiveness, and especially to be used by the Lord in some way. The antidote, again, for Satan's lies is truth. Now, restoration to service, restoration to ministry, can look differently in different situations and different um, occasions. It's a case-by-case kind of basis. But this morning, I want us to see Jesus' restoration of Peter, and we'll see some principles that are really guiding principles for how people can be restored after they've fallen, how people can be restored to service and ministry after you've blown it. Because as I said before, we've all blown it. Can I get an amen? We've all blown it. So how do you come back from a failure? Well, look at me. At the last section of John's gospel, this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, before I break down particularly Jesus' exchange with Peter and his restoration of Peter, to ministry. I do want to address an interpretation of this passage that I've heard in my life as a Christian, and you likely have too if you've spent any amount of time in the church, and it, the interpretation goes something like this. They point out the different Greek words that are used for love underneath the single English word love here in this passage. So Jesus says to Peter, uh, do you love me? And the Greek word, the verb is agapeo, and it's the verb form of the noun agape. We are familiar with agape love. It's unconditional. It's the highest form of Christian love. And then Peter responds, Lord, you know I love you. And the Greek word there is phileo, which is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Though I know, don't know if there's much brotherly love in Philadelphia today, but that's what the word means, brotherly love. And then Jesus asks him again, do you agapeo me? And Peter says again, you know, Lord, I phileo you. And then finally, the third time, Jesus asked him, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. And so uh, the way the interpretation goes is people will say, see, Peter couldn't even bring himself to express this unconditional highest form of love for Jesus. So Jesus kind of met him where he was and said, okay, Peter, do you phileo me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. I've said it three times now. The only problem with that interpretation is that's not the way these two Greek terms are used by John in his gospel account. He uses agape and phileo uh, interchangeably. So, for instance, in John chapter 3, Jesus says that the father loves agapeo, the son. When you go to chapter 5, he says virtually the same thing, but he uses the Greek word phileo, that the father phileos the son. And then he, when Peter, or excuse me, John refers himself to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, sometimes he uses the term agape, sometimes he uses the term phileo. So are we to think that, well, sometimes Jesus loved Peter, or John, excuse me, with an unconditional love, but then other times, ah, it's just a brotherly love. Sometimes the father loves the son with an unconditional love, but sometimes the father loves the son just with a brotherly love. Is that true? Of course Not. These terms are used interchangeably. So, for instance, ladies, if you were to say to your boyfriend, I need to know if you're really committed to me. And your boyfriend says, you know I'm devoted to you. You would interpret that as him answering affirmatively, right? We use terms interchangeably, and that's really what's happening here. Jesus is asking him, do you love me? And Peter is saying, you know everything. You know that I love you. What we actually see happening here is much deeper than just these terms being flown back and forth to each other. This is Jesus's restoration of Peter after his epic failure, and we see the process that Jesus walks Peter through toward that total restoration for kingdom usefulness. In fact, there's three principles that I want us to see this morning about Peter being restored to ministry that can apply to each of us or particularly to somebody that you may love that has failed the Lord. First of all, Peter is restored by the forgiveness of the Savior. Peter is restored by the forgiveness of the Savior. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving Peter the opportunity to rest in the reality of The forgiveness that Christ has purchased through his death, burial, and resurrection. Let me say that again. Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to rest fully in the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased through his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, He spoke that forgiveness to them and to Peter on three different occasions. On Sunday evening, twice, and then a week later, When Thomas was in the locked room, Jesus said the same phrase three times, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. You need to know something. There is no peace with God apart from the forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And as Jesus entered that locked room, they could see the very wounds that purchased their forgiveness. And Jesus speaks the forgiveness to them. Peace be with you. Now, there's something curious in this passage. Uh, The passage we studied last week, uh, the, the, the gospel writer John says that Jesus had made a charcoal fire. And with that charcoal fire, he was cooking some fish over that fire. Do you remember the last time John mentions a charcoal fire in his gospel account? Only one other occasion... It actually was outside of the high priest's home when Jesus was being interrogated. And there is Peter. He's warming himself, John says, over a charcoal fire. And now here again, John mentions Jesus is cooking over a charcoal fire. Have you ever noticed that that weird sensation that a smell has the capacity to, to trigger a vivid memory in your mind? Anybody else experience that besides me? When I smell a brand new shower curtain, (laughs) it triggers in my mind the little blow-up pool that my mom got for me when I was like five years old. As soon as I smell that shower curtain, I'm thinking, my mom gave me a pool, (laughs) right? It just triggers that memory. And I don't know, but maybe when, when Peter smelled that charcoal fire, he remembered, I denied the Lord around a charcoal fire. Whether or not the charcoal fire caused him to recall that tragic memory. Certainly, Jesus' repeated question three times did. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now, in order for Peter to come to full restoration by resting in the forgiveness that has been purchased by the Savior, there's a couple things we see Jesus call him to. First of all, Jesus calls him to own it. He had to own it. I don't know if you caught it, but... John refers to Peter in the text, in the narrative, as Simon Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. That's John's words. Peter was his nickname. That wasn't his birth name. Peter was the name that Jesus had given him when he first met him. Andrew, his brother, went and found Peter, said, Hey, Peter, I think we found the Messiah. Come meet him. He goes and meets Jesus, and Jesus says, You shall no longer be called uh, Simon Son of John, your name is now Peter. What does that mean? The rock. So John refers to Peter as the rock. Jesus does not. That was the nickname Jesus gave him. But here in the exchange, he doesn't refer to him as the rock because he's been kind of rocky. <laughs> he says, Simon, son of John. If you think about Peter, he's impetuous, bold. Often the first to claim something, uh, do something, stick his big foot in his mouth. He was the one in the water, in the boat that said, Jesus, let me walk on water to you. None of the other disciples had the boldness to say that. He was the first to confess Jesus was the Christ. He was also the one to cut off the servant's ear with a sword in the garden. He was the one who uh, ran into the tomb empty and see the grave clothes there. John didn't do that, impetuous Peter did. Well, Jesus asked him the question, do you love me more than these? What are the these? Are the these the 153 fish they caught in the net? Does the these refer to the fishing nets and the boats that represents his occupation and his family business? Do you love me more than these? Does it represent the disciples? Do you love me more than you love these Buddies of yours, you've been hanging out with for three years. I believe what Jesus is saying is he's recalling to Peter's mind his bold statement though everybody else will flee, though everybody else will fail, I'll never leave. They may all cut and run but not me, not the rock, not Peter. In fact, notice how Matthew records this statement in Matthew 26:33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What is Peter saying? I love you more than these guys. And now Jesus is asking him the question point blank. Do you love me more than these? Do you really? How convicting. Now the next two times that Jesus asks him, he leaves off the more than these, do you love me? Do you love me? And those three times obviously correspond to the three times Peter denied the Lord, just as Jesus told him he would before the rooster crowed. And what did Peter do? He went out and wept bitterly. But at this point, Jesus wants Peter to own it. He wants him to Come clean. He wants him to own his sin. Now, when Jesus confronts Peter with his sin, it's not like I do with my dog Murphy when he chews up a pillow, right? Bad dog! Look at this. Don't you do that again, right? That's shaming the dog. And I've been told by dog trainers, you're not supposed to shame your dog. Sorry. I shame my dog sometimes when he chews up pillows. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying, bad Peter. Jesus knew that he had already had regret. He had already been weeping before the Lord. What he wants him to do is to just be honest about his sinfulness. He wants him to own it. And friend, if you would be restored to kingdom usefulness, you got to own it. You got to come clean. You got to look at your own sin square in the face and say, yeah, I did it. No excuses. Peter didn't say, well, Jesus, you got to understand. I mean, it was cold that night. It was dark. I mean, I I hadn't been asleep all night. I didn't get a good night's sleep. I mean, I've been up. You know, if I don't get my eight hours, man, there's no telling what I'm going to do. He didn't try to make excuses. He he said, you know what? I'm going to own it. In fact, look at verse 17 again. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? There's godly grief with Peter because Jesus repeated the question three times. In fact, the apostle Paul uses the same term for grief in 2 Corinthians chapter seven. Look at it with me. Paul writes, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Peter is experiencing here a godly grief as he's being reminded by Jesus himself of his sin, as he's being called to own it. That's where it starts. You gotta own it. You don't try to cast blame. You don't try to shirk responsibility. Well, you don't understand my parents. You don't understand the the home I grew up in. You got to understand, I had this teacher that always had it out for me. It was my upbringing, it was the government. Own it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And at times, owning your sin, owning your own sin, can feel like almost a reckless honesty. Because though you may not need to confess to the world, you likely don't need to tell everybody about your fall. There's probably some people you need to tell. There's probably someone you need to come to. But ultimately, you need to come to the Lord and honestly say, I own it. And here's the freedom that comes from honestly owning your sin. Look at this next slide. Your past failure does not determine your future legacy. However, you failed the Lord in the past, that does not determine. How the Lord will use you in the future and your legacy for Him through your family and through your relational connections. And that is liberating. So, part of walking in freedom and the forgiveness of the Savior is you've got to own your sin. Secondly, He had to say it. He had to say it. Jesus wants Peter to say verbally and affirm His love for Him. Notice when he asks him the question, do you love me more than these? Peter doesn't say, well, yes, of course I love you more than these other disciples love you. No, he's learned his lesson. Additionally, in the course of the response, he references Jesus' omniscience. First, he says, Lord, you know I love you. Secondly, he says, Lord, you know I love you. Thirdly, he says, Lord, you know everything. You are omniscient because you know everything. You know that I love you. And we might technically say, well, that's not a specific confession. He didn't name his sin as far as the specific sin that he committed. Trust me, they both knew what sin was in reference here. He did speak his love for him, and Jesus is really getting to it in something of a roundabout way and really in an incredibly spiritual way. Do you love me? And he gets at it by going to something deeper than just regret, He went out and wept bitterly. He did regret the sin that he committed. But you don't have to be a Christian to feel regret. There's lots of non-Christians who are not indwelt by the Spirit of God that experience regret all the time. Somebody does something dumb at work and they lose their job. They experience regret. If you're a student, you cheat on a test and you get caught. You feel guilty. You break the speed limit, and you see the blue lights in your rearview mirror. You feel regret. I shouldn't have broken the speed limit. You don't have to be a Christian to feel regret. What Peter is experiencing here is not just the consequences for his sin or being embarrassed. Jesus' question causes him to go deeper. Peter, I'm not just talking about you being sorry for what you did. On the other side of regret, do you love me? Do you love me? Let me ask you, what is the most important qualification for ministry? And I'm not just talking about a pastor. For any ministry, rocking babies in the nursery, serving in our kingdom kids, running sound, playing in the band, what's the most important qualification for ministry? But we could say, well, you ought to believe the Bible's true. That's a good qualification. You ought to f- affirm fundamentals of the faith like are listed in the Apostles' Creed. That's a good qualification for ministry. You ought to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth, the authority of Scripture. Do you pray? Do you read the Bible? Do you give a portion of your income to the Lord? Those are all good qualifications, but I think fundamentally the most important qualification for serving the Lord in ministry would be this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And that's what he asks him. Do you? You love me because that question really gets to the heart. And when Peter says three times, Lord, I love you, he means it. It's a powerful step towards his restoration. It's a way of admitting his sin and not just owning it, but moving beyond it and saying it. That's the first aspect of restoration I see Jesus bring Peter to in this passage. Jesus brings Peter to fully rest in the complete forgiveness that the Savior has provided. Here's a second thing. He also restores him to something, to the fruitfulness of the Savior. He's restored to the fruitfulness of the Savior. As Jesus secured Peter's repentance with these three calls to affirm his love, he also restored Peter to ministry, specifically the office of pastor, With each of the three calls to affirm his love, Jesus responded with these three statements. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In his abounding, overwhelming, amazing grace, Jesus doesn't just say, okay, Peter, you're forgiven, but now surely you don't think you're going to serve in ministry again. Certainly, you don't think you're going to be used effectively in the kingdom again. I mean, think about what you did, Peter. You're going to be on the sidelines doing menial tasks in the background, never on the front forefront of service in the kingdom of get, again. Does Jesus say that? No. He says, okay, you're forgiven. Now, guess what? I'm putting you back in full-time service to me in pastoral ministry. You're going to feed my lambs. You're going to tend my sheep. You're going to feed my sheep. Now, it's important to note a few realities with regard to Peter's restoration of spiritual leadership in the kingdom of Jesus. First of all, Jesus says that these sheep, these lambs, he says, they're my sheep. These are my lambs. These are my sheep. Jesus is saying, I own the sheep. I own the lambs. I own the flock. And I can just tell you as a pastor, this is one of the most sobering realities in my own mind and heart that you are not my sheep you are not my flock you are the lord's sheep you're the lord's flock you're the lord's lamb there's nothing more sobering than this reality that as his under shepherds myself and our other five elders and and pastors who lead this congregation we are accountable to ultimately the chief shepherd because you are his flock you're his sheep. Because the reality is this. Jesus has no dearer possession to his heart than you. He doesn't. He died for you. He purchased his flock with his own blood. And the fact that he would entrust that leading and feeding to some knucklehead humans as under shepherds it's sobering. Another reality is the scope of pastoral leadership that Jesus calls Peter Peter to. He says, feed, tend, feed. So he doubles on the verb to feed. This is uh, speaking the word. This is preaching the word. This is discipling through the scriptures. There's the double responsibility of providing the spiritual nourishment to the flock. And then sandwiched in between those two is this word for tending this is providing leadership and shepherding and pastoral care. Interestingly, this very same Peter who's restored to pastoral office and pastoral service would write to elders in his first epistle about what this looks like. Notice 1 Peter chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Peter writing says, "So I exhort the elders. There are six in our church that are here today in this room. I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, so he's saying I'm an elder too, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, that's the word for pastor, pastor, the, f- the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, that's where we get our, our word for overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I am so thankful for God's grace gift of shepherds in this church who seek by God's grace to lead you as Christ has instructed us through his word. And Jesus is doing a work of restoration here with Peter. He's restoring him back to full service and full ministry. He's saying your past failure does not determine your future legacy. You have a future Jesus is in the business, listen, of not only redeeming us from our sin, but restoring us to usefulness in his work. And that's what he does here with Peter. First of all, by the forgiveness of the Savior. Secondly, to the fruitfulness of the Savior. But thirdly, in the following of the Savior. He restores Peter in the following of the Savior. Look at verse 18 and 19 again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young... You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He says, Peter, I want you to follow me. Are you ready? You failed me three times. I've restored you three times. Now here's my directive to you. Follow me. What did that mean? Follow me. It means to follow him even to the death. Even to the death. That phrase in verse 18, stretch out your hands, that was a first century idiom to describe dying by crucifixion. He's predicting, John says, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. John says, Jesus told Peter, You're gonna die by crucifixion. And after saying that, he said, follow me. (laughs) This is what it means to follow Jesus. Even to the death, Peter was in fact martyred by crucifixion. And I love the fact that John says in that parenthetical statement in verse 19, of Peter his friend, of Peter his colleague, of Peter his fishing partner, of Peter his ministry partner, of Peter who stood right beside him before the very Sanhedrin that had Jesus convicted and crucified, who was whipped by the same Sanhedrin, this Peter, he said, glorified God in his death. He brought glory to God in the way that he died. This is what is bound up in the words, follow me. Will you follow me? Will you glorify me even in the death? And here's what I know. If the church, if our church is not in the business of helping people die well, what are we doing? If we're not in the business of encouraging people to follow Jesus even when it gets difficult, what are we doing? This is what it means to truly follow after Christ. This week, as I thought about that reality of glorifying God even in the way you die, couldn't help but think of one of our former members, Chrissy Morrow. Five years ago, Chrissy was diagnosed with ALS, it just took us a small Google search to find out what that diagnosis would entail, that slowly she would lose complete control of every muscle in her body. First, walking became difficult, and then she was confined to this really fancy wheelchair. Then it would be difficult for her, just like the text says to dress yourself and lead yourself where you want to go. Chrissy experienced that. Her ability to speak became more and more labored and I can remember visiting with her in her home and I could hardly understand what she was saying because her capacity to speak was almost gone. Finally, she couldn't speak And the only way she had to communicate with people was through a special device that was set up on her wheelchair that followed her eye movements. That's all she could move. And this device would follow her eyes, and she would move her eyeballs, and it would manipulate her tablet, and she could type out responses and questions and sentences. I can remember being there, and conversation is moving from one subject to another, and then she would finally get a sentence typed out that was from the topic we were discussing three topics ago. It just took her a while to get it typed out with her eyeballs, and we'd return there because she wanted to say something about that topic. Chrissy glorified God because every day, She would open up that tablet and she would use her eyeballs to research a particular spiritual devotional subject the Lord had laid on her heart that day. She would open up a web browser, she would research it, she would cross-reference, and then with her eyeballs she would type out a devotional message that she would text to over 500 people every day. I'm going to read you the last message she posted the day before she met Jesus. And the day before, she ran into his arms. Here's her message. Good morning, sunshine. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that, you go, that I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, 2. But it is written, with no, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. But according to his promise, We are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which the righteous dwell, 2 Peter 3.13. And she always closed every message with this phrase, I love you, but Jesus loves you more. If that's not glorifying God in death, I don't know what is. But as I conclude this message and as we conclude this two-year verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, I want to conclude with the words that John concludes his spirit-inspired account of Jesus' life with. Look at the last verse one last time. John 21, 25, the last verse of this gospel. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Friends, even after all we've seen, all we've studied, all I've preached, For two years in John's gospel, John is saying this doesn't even scratch the surface. The world could not contain the pages and pages and books of books of all that God had done. I talked to my dad on Thursday, Thanksgiving, and I read this verse to him. I said, what do you think of that, dad? And here's where we came. Jesus is the eternal God. And the only way you could record everything Jesus has done is if you could do it for all of eternity. Therefore, the world couldn't contain the books. Not even the digital books on your Kindle could not contain all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus Has said. Think of just what we've studied in John's gospel. Jesus is the Word. He's the Creator by whom all things were created. He's the Word who has taken on flesh. He's the only begotten Son. He's the Comforter. He's the King of the Jews. He's the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Door of the Sheep, the Good Shepherd. He's the Resurrection and the Life, the Way and the Truth and the Life. And according to Thomas, my Lord and my God. Think of what we know of Jesus, his names and titles in the scripture. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Christ. He's the last Adam. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the Bride and morning star. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king. He's the Almighty One. He's the advocate. He's the author of all life. He is the beloved. He's the bridegroom. He's the cornerstone. He is the head of the church. He's the Holy One of Israel, the horn of salvation. He is the great I Am. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb of God who is slain from the foundation of the world. He's the one who takes away our sins. He is our mediator. He is the mighty one. He's the man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. He's our redeemer. He's our rock. He's the risen Lord. He's the savior. He's the son of the most high. He's the son of man, the son of God, and the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. He's the one by whom all things were created and in whom all things are contained. He's the branch. He's the deliverer. He's the faithful witness, the exact image of the invisible God. He is the righteous judge. He's the promised child of Eve. He's the promised seed of Abraham. He's the root of David. He's the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. He's the Lord of glory, the Lord of righteousness, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Friends, pages and pages of paper of all the books could never possibly contain all who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for after all he is the eternal Lord of glory and forever and always we who know him will be worshiping this Jesus and I want to leave you this morning as we close John's gospel with the question he asked Jesus, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? That's the question do you love me? And that leads to my last thought, which is from John's pen in his first epistle. We love because he first loved us. Jesus, we thank you for the demonstration of your love, the example.